Hello and welcome back to the Good Work Podcast. I'm Felicity Holstead, your host and the founder of Good Work. On today's episode, I'm talking to Etty Bailey-King. Etty is an inclusive and accessible comms consultant, working with businesses to help them reflect on how they use language and the huge impact that can have. I am really excited to bring you this episode. I could easily have kept talking to Etty for hours and we covered so many subjects, including why language is never just neutral, the politicisation of the language that we use, and why it is absolutely possible to communicate inclusively and also communicate well. Etty, welcome to the Good Work Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. I would love it if we could just start today by having you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. All right. So I'm an inclusive and accessible communication consultant. I'll define that in a little bit, but for now, I'll just say that it's to do with using words and phrases really thoughtfully towards social justice. And the way that I do that is I'm freelance. So I'm a self-employed consultant and I work with lots of different charities and businesses. My background was mainly in activism for a long time. So I did a lot of climate activism and stuff around gender equality and sexual violence when I was a teenager and in my 20s. And then I co-ran a small charity called the Schools Consent Project. And then after working in international development for a bit, and for a charity called Girls Not Brides, the Global Partnership to End Child Marriage. I then started working on trustee diversity for a charity Mm -hmm. called Getting On Board, which is a really cool charity. So they're helping to get a really broad range of people becoming charity trustees, because at the moment, your average charity trustee board is about 92% white. And it's very very pale male and stale and there are all kinds of problems with that and so yeah that was really wonderful working with them I was doing communications for them helping to reach a wider audience of people and then I started working freelance doing communications and content with this sort of inclusive accessible like social justice angle and I think a lot of people don't realize that you can just go freelance relatively early in your career and that I wasn't going freelance as someone with decades of expertise. I went freelance because I didn't know anyone else that was doing what I was doing. And I felt there was this enormous need. I would work with clients and they might, for example, be using really gendered language in their job descriptions. They might be creating great content, but they weren't formatting it in a way that was accessible. So hyperlinks wouldn't be unique and descriptive. So it'd be really hard for someone who uses a screen reader to access that content. They weren't using alt text on their images, for example, or they were centering dominant groups like white people or men in their language. And I was thinking Mm -hmm. there's this massive need for people to understand how they can use their language differently and I didn't see anyone else doing it so I would yeah I would say a big vote of encouragement to anyone who thinks there's this gap no Mm -hmm. one around me is doing it can I really be a self-employed person in my 20s or 30s yes you absolutely can and you should if you can do it absolutely so you've touched on it a little bit there but can you give us a few more examples of what being an inclusive and accessible communications consultant means and why it's something that organizations should be investing in? Absolutely. I'll start by talking a little bit about language. So the words that we choose 
they're never just neutral. They kind of encode and reflect power dynamics. So mm-hmm. the words that we choose make some people seem normal and neutral and other people seem exceptional. And they encourage us to think that those exceptional groups, maybe women, maybe people of color, maybe disabled people are less important. And we don't think we don't need to think about their needs so much, for example. Or we use words that make systems of oppression like racism, classism and ableism invisible. So we just talk about structural disadvantage as though it's just happened by accident, but our words are helping to cover up those systems. And we maybe use words which sort of set some people up as though they're like passive victims. So for example, the way some charities will talk about beneficiaries and you know, that word might not sound particularly offensive on its own, but coupled with other language that implies that some people are just passively getting help from a charity, which is inaccurate. It's not realistic. It's actually the case that people have been very actively marginalized by social systems and they're not passive at all. They're taking a very active role in their own life. But those words that we use really shape the way that we think about certain groups. And then that shapes the kinds of policies that we vote for and the kinds of support that people get. So in a very real way, the words that we choose, they kind of create and sustain the way that the world is set up. So instead, if we use language that's really accurate and specific and affirmative, we can sort of place a vote for the world that we actually want to see. So often, if you look up inclusive language, you'll see definitions that say something like, inclusive language doesn't perpetuate stereotypes or bias or discrimination. And really, there's a lot of limits with just thinking about inclusiveness as what we're aiming to do there so loads of thinkers for example Kat Holmes makes this really great point that inclusion is never about being shut in or shut out in one simple way there is not one in-group and one out-group in society in fact there are masses of intersecting overlapping systems of oppression and people are excluded in multiple ways all at the same time and because society isn't a club that you can be in or out of we actually need to work even harder so we shouldn't try and be inclusive with our language we should really try and be anti-oppressive and by that we mean noticing these systems of oppression racism sexism classism ableism heterosexism and so on calling to attention that they're there questioning their role dismantling them and then showing alternatives so I guess that's all quite an elaborate way of saying that what we're doing here is just using language to correctly name what's going on in society and give people the status the dignity the respect that they deserve and then accessibility much easier to understand so a lot of us are familiar with the idea of accessibility like on a website it's about making your content more accessible to disabled people so that it's easy for somebody who's blind or deaf or who uses keyboard controls to access a website but more broadly when you make your content accessible you're just making it better for everyone you're just making Mm -hmm. it more flexible and easy to relate to Um, so there's a very real sense in which inclusion is for everyone and accessibility is for everyone It's fascinating. And I think as a small business owner myself and having, you know, gone through that process of starting up an organization, particularly one that is focused on diversity, equity and inclusion, I have definitely been aware how much language matters, but it does feel like those guide rails are often not there or you can end up feeling so afraid of getting it wrong that you kind of avoid those issues at all. And actually, 
you know, you can end up being concerned that by trying to be inclusive and accessible in your use of language, you end up creating content or communicating in a way that is actually just really difficult to understand. What would you say to people like me who have those concerns around whether inclusive and accessible language can actually still be good language? Totally. I really empathise with where people are coming from with that. But I also always want to point out that the most inclusive and accessible content is not the overworked, overdefined stuff. It's really, really simple. Mm-hmm. So some of the principles of how we create anti-oppressive content are basically to keep things really simple. And that's important because we might be creating content that's going to go out to people who are dyslexic or have a very literal understanding of English, like some autistic people do, mm-hmm. um, people who speak English as an additional language. So using really simple standard English is already anti-oppressive. Not overthinking it and just keeping it simple is really important because that gets away from some of the weird euphemisms that we get into. We (laughs) find ourselves tangled up. You know, you read people like, oh, um, people who are experiencing the specific situation of living in poverty. And it's like, you can just say that they're living in poverty. That's, you know, not a dirty word. Um, Disabled is not a dirty word. You don't use these strange euphemisms like saying special needs, for example. If we just recognize that people are people, they exist in lots of different situations where people are marginalized, it's not their fault. It's because of systems that have been set up to marginalize them. And if we just point that out and just clearly name it, then we're well on the way to being anti-oppressive. There's also just this sense that I really believe that anti-oppressive language is just better language because it tends to create more spaces for people to exist within it. So really gender binary language, like saying ladies and gentlemen, for example, can be really harmful because lots of people don't identify as a man or as a woman. They might identify as non-binary, for example. And if you just use language that is like very broad and open and we just talk about people, colleagues, folks, everyone, It doesn't need to be really complex. It just creates that space that lots of people can imagine themselves into that. And I think there's another point here, which is that a lot of the time we've inherited these words that reflect the way our society looks. So if I just say I met a person the other day, in most cases, um, the person you will picture will often be a white middle class man. That's some research that was done by a professor called Scott Kiesling. And if we don't mark an individual, that's kind of where our brain goes, because that's who we think is the default standard human. And we live in a society that is broadly built for that kind of human and everyone else is seen as a bit exceptional. But if you get into the habit of just marking difference and remembering to mention someone's race, not only when they're non-white, but also when they are white. And we remember to talk about men as having a gender and not just everyone else having gender and men as like being somehow, again, that normal human. It sounds like a really simple change and it is, it's easy to do, but you're disrupting so many complex social systems there. So I would really encourage people to literally just practice like decentering what's normal and just catch yourself. Am I mentioning someone's race? only when they're a person of color well that's a sign that I'm kind of treating whiteness as really normal and neutral I would say start small (laughs) 
Absolutely. And I think there's also a concern sometimes that the last thing any of us want to do is alienate people with the language that we use. But language has become very politicized in many ways. For example, there are those who would consider you saying pregnant people as opposed to women to be really offensive and almost like an act of communication violence against women. And that's a really difficult kind of you know, path to tread, particularly when you're working in a space that where making choices around those types of language is really important. What what advice would you give for people who have concerns about the politicization of inclusive language? I would say we need to think really hard about who is harmed in a scenario. And yes, I often get criticized by people who call me um Uh, gender ideological which is what people say when they don't like you being trans inclusive Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we just need to think about who's actually harmed right now trans people are harmed by the fact that there isn't really good really trans inclusive health guidance out there like the NHS massively delayed really important healthcare guidance Mm -hmm for all kinds of gender diverse people who might be starting a family, for example. And that is real harm. And I'm a lot more concerned about that than someone who feels like they just privately disagree with those specific words. I would say you may not like the word pregnant person and you don't need to like it, but it's about looking to who will be genuinely disadvantaged if we don't do that. And I think we can also just call on some other really simple principles So we can think about accuracy. So a lot of the time, it's just more accurate to call it, for example, male violence against women and girls, because overwhelmingly it is perpetrated by men. In very small cases, it's not. And you might offend some men if you say Mm -hmm. that. But broadly speaking, you're just reflecting reality. And it's important that we reflect that. Otherwise, we invisibilize men. We make it look like it happens accidentally like it's the weather or something (laughs) (laughs) or like if we talk about people just happening to be in a state of disadvantage we're not focusing enough on the systems and policies that put them there so we need to show that like society has been actively designed so that some people are excluded and some other principles I would ask people to think about are just like clarity and specificity and asking the affected person so On clarity, I mean avoiding euphemism and sort of um, weird, awkward workarounds that imply something shameful about somebody's disability or difference. And being specific, the point there is that we often use umbrella terms. So we tend to be very specific about people who have social power. We speak about them with great nuance. And then we tend to be quite vague about anyone that's considered less important or less normal. So if you catch yourself using a really broad umbrella term like LGBTQIA+, and actually you are talking about one specific group, maybe you're actually talking about asexual people, then resist the urge to use the umbrella term because the umbrella term is going to obscure all these different identities and make them seem like they're one. So just getting really specific. And then lastly, being informed by how people want to be talked about. So in the UK, um, the vast majority of autistic people prefer identity first language, I like autistic person rather than person first language which would be a person with autism and that can feel really uncomfortable if you're not familiar with it you can be like oh should I be saying they're autistic or should I be saying person with autism and again I would just encourage people to kind of like gently put to one side 
that discomfort and recognize that it just matters how people actually want to be referred to you need to ask people you can't guess yeah. the references and it can all feel very complicated very political very confusing but one of the ways around that is just to keep it really simple and say we ask affected people how they want to be talked about and then we follow their preferences exactly and I think you also make space for people who are marginalized to say or you know who who are often marginalized by language to say actually I don't like that expression or there's something that you've said there that that's not how I prefer to be referred to and next time could you do this and we need to be okay with learning and being told we're wrong something that I think about an awful lot is around good work we work with young people from less privileged socioeconomic backgrounds and the term less privileged is one that has been very carefully chosen we've very specifically chosen not to use the word disadvantaged and we've talked a lot about privilege and how it's relative and why less privileged feels like the appropriate expression to use but I'd be really interested to know from your perspective what the guidance would be that you would give to organizations working particularly in this space and if there are any kind of common mistakes or things that people are maybe getting slightly wrong when they talk about socioeconomic background particularly for example around things like job adverts and how they engage with those communities within organizations yeah so I think I'll start with some I'm going to go one step back yeah and think about mindset before we think about language so I think A mistake that many of us make is that we begin with a mindset, which is sometimes, so you might be familiar with like the business case for diversity. And it's this perspective that some people are diverse and we almost imagine that an individual can be diverse, even Mm -hmm. though diversity is a measure of difference. And what we mean there is we actually mean people who've been historically and are currently marginalized or excluded. So we mean maybe people of color people who've experienced poverty and the business case for diversity mindset says we'll just add in a few people into this existing system and all of our workplace systems will continue to privilege whiteness and maleness and middle classness and we'll continue to sort of look for those same qualities in the same candidates and maybe we'll look for the same qualities in slightly different rappers but we'll still expect that our new hire let's say they're black and working class we'll expect them to still behave and communicate in exactly the same way as the rest of our workforce even the rest of our workforce might be let's say white and middle class on average and I think that mindset of saying that we want difference but not really valuing it thinking that we know what we're looking for Um, but we're actually just assessing for the exact same qualities and then making tiny tweaks in how we talk about what we're looking for. So we essentially keep looking for that same candidate, but we just tweak the wording a bit and we think, oh, actually that advert was a bit gendered because we were asking for someone who's strong-willed, hard-headed and has a ferocious (laughs) talent for sales. (laughs) So, you know, we, we slightly tweak the language and we'll just soften it gently. But then we are still recruiting for the exact same characteristic. And I think that's one of the areas we get into trouble, which is that we've got to actually understand that difference is valuable because it enhances us, because it strengthens us, because our workplaces should look like the rest of the communities that we live in, like the world that we live in. And like, If we buy into that business case for diversity thinking, which, by the way, is problematic also because it 
it instrumentalizes marginalized people. It says that they're good because like companies become more profitable. Well, in that case, we are recruiting people who have been and are oppressed and we're expecting them to fix our organizations. Mm -hmm. So I would say start by changing that mindset and start by wanting difference because we need it and value it and it enhances all of us. And then when you get into the language, I would say, be specific, be clear, be affirmative, really name those systems of oppression. So let's not Mm -hmm. fall into euphemisms um, or coded language. I worked with a client recently who kept talking about inner city candidates. Do you mean people of color? That's incredibly racially coded. (laughs) Just say what you mean. I think to sum up, I would say shift that mindset so you're doing it for the right reasons. You're not doing it for PR. You're not trying to look progressive you just value and celebrate difference and that means you're actually happy when new candidates genuinely speak and think in a different way and will challenge you and are going to shake things up and then use language that talks honestly and openly about all the different identities that are now at play in your community Oh gosh, my mind is is buzzing. There are so many things that have come up for me there. I started my career in a very male-dominated space and it was a space where I very much felt like a minority kind of for the first time in my life because I'm otherwise a, a middle-class white woman and therefore I'm generally not particularly marginalised. It was that expectation that the way to succeed was to adapt and that also we would be responsible to push forward a lot of that work that needed to be done around making sure that we were being treated equally and being treated in an inclusive way. When you look back now, it's kind of astonishing to me that we didn't throw our toys out with a pram more than we did. And it often felt like we were being so fundamentally disruptive by even saying, we don't really feel like we're being treated fairly here all of the time. When actually we were the people with the least power in that environment. And that is so much about, you know, what Good Work is trying to do. And what I say to the organizations that we work with is this is not about finding underrepresented candidates and making them fit into your organization. It is about building an organization that actually reflects the the world that we live in and making space for people to turn up and be themselves. And it is, it's a long journey, but it's such a rewarding one when you start to see some of those changes shifting. Sorry, this has turned into therapy for Felicity. Um, but it's so, it's just so interesting because you know, my own experiences there were not that long ago. And I am not someone who really considers myself to be in in any way underprivileged so I think when people say haven't we had enough of this inclusion and diversity stuff I just want to say no (laughs) we're we're nowhere near and I think there's a couple of things I really want to respond to there so Mm -hmm. firstly that danger of like recruiting marginalized people to do their own anti-oppression be like hello please don't oppress me yeah, yeah. Heard, and we continue to do it yeah and I think it's often bound up in this language of representation so like mm-hmm. we need to create representative workforces and whilst representation is incredibly important and our teams should be racially diverse and they should be like class and gender and all of these other factors diverse because that matters it's not nearly enough if the teams are just representative. And 
what we should be trying to create is actually not teams that look like our society because our society is a racial hierarchy in which working class people and people of color are systematically oppressed and a very small elite is systematically privileged because mm-hmm. the way that they speak is considered powerful and worthy of respect and so on. I'm not going to yeah. get too Marxist here, but I would just say, <laughs> like, if we we need to go beyond wanting to create a microcosm of society outside, yeah. society outside is also broken. And so if we can create genuinely anti-oppressive workplaces, they will mm-hmm. look like nothing we've ever seen before. And we should celebrate that we should want to work in places that look strange and unfamiliar and that we don't even know how to understand them because that will mean that they are spaces of justice and just one little example of that you know how people often talk about like oh your autism is your superpower or your ADHD Mm. is your like you know it's this fetishization of difference and it's saying we will tolerate your difference because we can basically make sense of it under capitalism because we assume that you're hyper productive or you're hyper creative or something else that's useful to us and actually radical inclusion would kind of look like saying we welcome you maybe you're a lot less productive than your co-workers that's completely fine we're yeah. not we're not interested in welcoming you into our workforce because of what you will add to the bottom line. We are looking at the way that you will enrich our community. Oh, 100%. And I think you're absolutely right. That fetishization. I've certainly felt that as a woman in corporate spaces so many times, particularly in spaces where there were very few women. And it's incredibly, it's incredibly patronizing, but it's that we're going to make you feel like you're femininity as my example makes you more powerful and actually some days you're just like I just want to come to work and do my job and I think one other thing that's kind of come up for me while you've been talking is you're absolutely right that idea that you know we are not hiring candidates who are underrepresented because of some diversity initiative we are hiring them as you say because we want to enrich our workspaces and because actually the future looks very different to anything that's ever existed before and that's a really good thing and that's one of the conversations that I have a lot at the moment with organizations that good work is working with is that actually investing in entry-level talent that comes from less privileged socioeconomic backgrounds for example is not charity work the money that you spend on this should not be coming from your charitable budgets or your CSR budget it's your talent budget. It's just HR, it's people, it's part of business as usual. And I don't want to shut organizations down and say, well, I'm not going to work with you then. However, it's one of my real bugbears because actually if something is feeding into your talent pipeline and the future of your workforce, that is not charity work. And it is fundamentally offensive to suggest that it is. Completely what a way to signal that some people are valued because of the way that they might look in a workplace versus what they might contribute and I just think yeah ultimately that mindset will never get us to liberation but I completely get that you need to work with some people where they are while simultaneously signaling where we need to get to what I often think about we're all part of systems of oppression and that's obviously not my thinking that's the work of countless theorists but the broader point is like because we're all part of these systems of oppression inevitably we take part in them and we replicate them no one is free from that 
And even we often think that highly oppressed people are like saints or heroes, but actually you can be a person of color and you can absolutely replicate racism. Mm -hmm. And it's not just possible, but likely that we will be doing things that are harmful in some ways. And I think what tends to be helpful is not to kind of like panic and think, oh, we're all doomed because sometimes we still say sexist and ableist and classist things. And therefore that means that change is impossible. No, it just means recognizing like we're all human, we make mistakes. The interesting part is how we try and rectify the mistakes. So can you notice the part that you played in something oppressive? Can you then just like, be accountable for it. Can you apologize where necessary and keep it simple and not like center yourself with some Mm -hmm. over the top absurd apology, but just be like, oh, I see I've done harm. Sorry about that. I'm now going to work on that in a different way. And can you make sure that you're not taking up space that should really be filled by someone else? As a white middle-class woman and a cis woman, I often get invited into spaces where I just literally shouldn't be. And I have to reply, like I often get asked to do anti-racism work. Mm. And my website very clearly states, I do not do anti-racism work. I will talk about racism as it intersects with classism and ableism and so on. And I, you know, will put out information about the fact that it exists, but I'm not unique in doing that. And yet people love to hear about racism from white people because somehow that's easier for them to take. So I think if we can just practice, like make sure that you are just pointing to the actual experts. And I will say, please check out the work of this amazing anti-racism expert. who's a black woman who's been doing this for 40 years. Definitely don't ask me because I don't know about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think something you've touched on there is it's about using your privilege to, you know, where you can to make the world a better place but also knowing when to get out of the way is such an important part of that and it's something I work on a lot for myself should I even be doing this because do I represent the privilege that I'm trying to dismantle and in many ways I do but I think to the extent that I am creating something new that is going to solve specific problems in a way that's not currently being worked on I can be okay with that. There will come a point where I think actually maybe I do need to get out of the way and invite somebody else in to that space. I think something else that you mentioned there is obviously intersectionality, which brings me very nicely onto my next question, which is socioeconomic disadvantage is nearly always intersectional. And so that is one of the reasons why we actually focus on it as good work because it cuts across society in every possible way and it's a really good way of capturing people who are being oppressed in multiple ways or marginalized in multiple ways how can we acknowledge the importance of that in an authentic way and how can we make sure that when we're talking about you know people who are experiencing kind of multiple forms of oppression that we're not being very kind of siloed and how we look at that. I do think we have to confront it, talk about Mm -hmm. it, name it. And we need to not hide behind labels that make us feel safe and comfortable because they Mm -hmm. don't get too close to the truth. An example might be, so in the charity sector, we often say that some groups are hard to reach. Yeah. my view and the view of loads of people is that that label really blames people for 
having to be marginalized. <laughs> it's, it's like their phones are turned off or something. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's not like, okay, actually, what we're talking about is the product of decades of systemic exclusion. And instead, we can say, like, actively marginalized, or we can say, like, seldom heard, often ignored is, is a way more accurate way of talking about a lot of these groups. So, like, sex workers are often considered hard to reach. And I would say, well, in many cases, we know exactly where they are. We can reach them. We're just choosing not to. Or there's this language around like, give groups that don't have a voice a voice. Mm-hmm. And these people have always had a voice. They are just literally not being listened to. So yeah. I think, or, or lastly, maybe the way that we often talk about diversity and we just mean anti-racism mm-hmm. or we mean anti-classism and anti-ableism and if we would just really name what we're talking about we would be going some way towards acknowledging this yeah multiple disadvantage or whatever you want to call it in an authentic way because that is what it is so I think there's an element of not overthinking it and naming it as we see it and see it I think for me there's something about reflecting on your own privilege and trying to always keep that in mind so I remember being in a session which a senior member of staff very kindly gave to some junior members of staff mm-hmm. in one of my old jobs and that member of staff was like generously sharing their expertise about how to network and the problem is that that person had all manner of privilege that they didn't realize they had and they were saying, oh, just email someone and ask for a meeting. People always want to meet with me. And it's like, yes, well, if I was rich and famous, I imagine lots of people would also want to meet with me. But that's not the way that I move yeah. through the world. Or we can look at the way that, um, you know, like the concept of radical candor at work, really popular theory a few years ago. It's this idea that you're just very honest with people in like a loving way. And it basically doesn't work for groups like black women who will be accused of being angry black women or will have these harmful stereotypes thrown at them if they try to be honest and direct. So I think always trying to think about that bigger context in which our advice or our guidance will be received and keeping that in mind. So if you're giving someone instructions on how to present at a conference, then think about it and be like, well, maybe the way that I move around the stage is going to be completely different from how they might move around because of a disability they have, for example. And then I think also there's this point about challenging inherited systems, which, like I've said, we're all going to make mistakes. Like no one's pure, no one's perfect. (laughs) We're all just doing this messy work of trying to challenge systems of oppression. But getting into the mindset that like no system or structure is unchangeable and that we can always be reinventing it. And that applies right down to the level of the words you use. And it applies also to experimentation, to things that might fail. And that we should probably get out of the habit of seeing failures as negative because they're just attempts to imagine a new world. So if we can build workplaces where people feel and and communities more broadly, where people feel safe making mistakes, they will try so many things out and they will move us to places that we can't yet imagine. And in some of those places will be the seeds of real liberation and real justice, but it might not look that way at the time. So again, this is um, quite a strange way of me (laughs) answering your question because I'm basically saying that I think to be authentic is to just be utterly vulnerable and to know that we will get all kinds of things wrong and we just have to be okay with that yeah absolutely psychological safety is 
critical to any thriving workplace culture. But I think also recognizing that people's psychological safety will be experienced differently. There is always with time and with experience, you're going to feel more safe in any environment. And when you're new or you're junior at work, it's always going to be more difficult to to be honest and to be yourself and to say what you think. I think you often see with leaders, this kind of fear of saying what they think because they're concerned that their privilege is going to be held against them. And we see that in so many leaders in the way that they've responded to big societal challenges over the last few years. I think back to the murder of Sarah Everard last year and how organisations responded to that and how organisations have responded to Black Lives Matter as well. And that actually fear preventing people from speaking would cause more problems than probably any misstep you could have made when speaking. And is that something that you find with leaders to be a challenge in the work that you do? This fear of making mistakes. I think we don't focus enough on the harm that is done by the things that we don't do. You're so afraid to talk about racism that you just stay completely silent on it while racism is killing countless people or you are so afraid to misgender someone that you end up I don't know maybe literally not talking to someone at a networking event because Mm -hmm. you look at them and you realize you can't guess their gender from looking at them side note you can't do that with anyone and then you end up kind of shutting yourself down and failing to connect with and learn from that person and I think that happens at an interpersonal level all the way up to when leaders are at the helm of massive organizations so I would say that our fear of causing offense is understandable and we should be worried about causing harm to people to some extent because we should use Mm -hmm. that to make sure that we're really careful that we stay informed that we do the work that we get proactive about learning about anti-oppression and unlearning the harmful things that we've learned so that fear of offense is useful insofar as it fires us up and gets us doing things and it's not useful if it just leaves us sitting quietly in our room with lots of people that look just like us what I often see from leaders is I often get asked what's the one word that I can use to show that I'm really progressive (laughs) it's so sweet and I want to be like oh I am so sorry. The word you're looking for does not exist, right? Yeah. (laughs) Language changes all the time. And the way that you, like, you don't get to look progressive. You have to do the work. And I will never, I won't work with people who ask me to basically woke wash their content. They're like, we want to look really inclusive. I'll talk to them about their systems and be like, right, what are you doing to tackle racial disparities in in pay? What are you doing around your board diversity? All of these things. And if they're not doing the actual work there, then no way we're going to just like polish the turd on an unequal organization. Make it more inclusive. That can mean inviting marginalized people into an organization where they think they'll be safe and then they'll be subject to all the same oppression. So... I think getting out of the mindset that this is a nice little add-on that you can do at the end (laughs) is really important. I think trying to tackle culture, the idea of being an ally can be super powerful if it's done right. But people often say ally is a verb, not a noun. It's about what you do. And we shouldn't be asking, how can I look like an ally 
to people of color. We should be saying, how can I work alongside people of color to create just outcomes, for example? That's someone that a consultant that I really like called Lily Zheng often said this question, how do we create the just outcome? Don't worry too much about whether you're going to be featured in a lovely list of top 100 employers. Just focus on that outcome. Then one day you might get the cookie or the gold medal, but you need to not be doing it for the cookie, for the gold medal. It's intimately bound up with this right to comfort. There's this thinker I really love called Dr. Tema Okun, and she has this, it's called the characteristics of white supremacy culture. And it's her Mm. observations about things that are very common in a lot of settings, and I would argue literally everywhere, which is things like the belief that there's one right way of doing things, that there's an either or binary, that there's like a kind of right to comfort and that white people should be insulated from all forms of discomfort and that everything should be really nice and polite and there should be no explicit conflict. And it's such a seductive idea and it's lovely for people like me who have yet I also am scarcely marginalized and I can have this very comfortable life. And occasionally when you feel like you stick your neck out and you're like, oh, um, suddenly this is getting very difficult. I'd like to just stop thinking about all of these things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, yeah. and imagine how lovely that would be if people who experienced the oppression were allowed to do that, if they were allowed to switch off from that. That is something that leaders really need to take on and question. What level of right to comfort are they experiencing? And if they do imagine that they have the right to always feel comfortable, where did that come from? Absolutely. And so there was an article in a newspaper recently, a slightly right-leaning newspaper about how diversity and inclusion initiatives were damaging Oxbridge because they were just disadvantaging the actually brightest young people. And I think it spoke so much to me and I've heard it before in lots of different places, people saying, oh, well, it's much harder to get a job now if you're a straight white man, which we all know is just absolutely absurd. But that that idea that actually you, okay, well, we're, we're here for diversity and inclusion so long as it doesn't disadvantage anyone in any way. And actually that disadvantage is not a disadvantage. It is a remote removal of existing privilege and how you know everybody has to be comfortable with it and as soon as somebody becomes uncomfortable because they feel like the rights that they've never questioned that they've had are being taken away from them that that's an an unacceptable situation that it reminds me of a time when I was very new in my career and for some inexplicable reason I was doing a presentation on something to do with the gender pay gap because apparently that was my job to fix and I was told by my boss to make sure that I looked happy while I talked about the fact the organization I worked in systemically paid women less than men and yes of course it was not illegal because it was because we had more junior women and all of that and you know people seem to think that you don't understand how statistics works when you challenge that but it's so right and it's like that don't make anyone uncomfortable you're allowed to do your thing and have your pet hobby so long as you don't make anyone uncomfortable and it's so toxic yeah and it reminds me that word pet hobby of this concept we call going from pet to threat whereby particularly black women women of color in a workforce they'll be welcomed in and celebrated and everyone's like oh wow we love this new recruit they're different and they bring these wonderful new ideas and then the moment that you know actual challenge starts to emerge because you've hired someone who is bold and can say what they see and is critical of injustice then they become seen as a threat and then there's this 
this pipeline of pushing candidates like that out of workforces yeah Um, and the other thing that just pops to mind randomly is this cartoon that has always stuck in my mind comparing that idea of when you give up privilege it will feel like oppression and the Mm -hmm. cartoonist I can't remember their name has just drawn how when you're sitting on like a train or a plane and you've got a free seat next to you and you're like this free seat is my seat I'm going to put my little pillow on it I'm going to put my feet up I'm going to spread out and then someone comes along and wants to sit in the seat next to you and you're like how dare you (laughs) Because you felt so entitled to that spare seat. And I'm the same. I'm like, how dare they have also bought a ticket for this form of transport? And yeah, of course, we had no right to the spare seat next to us. We were yeah. briefly enjoying it while it was there. Also, this comparison breaks down because obviously, you know, systemic oppression is, is a lot more active. Yes, exactly. It also breaks down because I must admit I am one of those people who is like, don't sit next to me, don't. It's like, I will give up the seat, but I will make you feel bad about it because I don't like sitting next to strangers. It gives me the ick. However... I do otherwise I do accept that I'm a really bad person for thinking that way and it's something I need to work on actually I feel like this links with with a kind of academic concept in ED&I which is Mm -hmm. it's called homophily or like in-group preference or in-group love which is that we often underestimate how much a lot of systemic oppression and and don't get me wrong loads of it is about like active discrimination against people because of who they are like anti-black racism is is a function of white supremacy and it is literally about targeting black people but we simultaneously underestimate how much of the harm that we do comes from preference for people like us Mm -hmm. and not just from active dislike or criticism of people that aren't like us and I don't know why this comes to mind because again the the plane the train (laughs) the comparison isn't quite working but Often, you know, we might feel like more comfortable if someone that is a bit like us comes and sits next to us. And we might think that's like a really innocent, oh, I'm a youngish woman. So, of course, I'm going to want a youngish woman to sit next to me. And that could be about safety. And it could Mm -hmm. be. But I think if we're not constantly learning about that in-group preference and trying to break it down and trying to get out of the habit of surrounding ourselves with people who look like us, we will get into trouble. So I think I just really wanted to bring it in. I've shoehorned mm. that in rather strangely. Because yeah. we can be doing all the academic reading. We can be working so hard to do the, the intellectual learning. But if we're not also just challenging that in-group preference all the time. And here's a really trivial example in my own life. I go to a yoga class and there's a few different instructors. And there's one instructor who's who, I find him really hard to understand. Because his accent is not one that I've been exposed mm-hmm. to a lot. And I'm trying to practice going to his one because I was like, oh, it's interesting how uncomfortable it makes me. I should sit and work with that. Trivial example, bigger point maybe about how can we be doing that in our workplaces and in our friendships and in the bigger picture. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've already mentioned quite a few interesting thinkers in this space. Um, But if there was a particular book or a podcast episode or the work of a particular thinker in this space that you would recommend people do as their kind of further bit of reading, what would that be? Oh, so many possible answers. Right. I'm going to 
I'm going to pick two books and I'm going to cheat because I work on two areas. So one is about inclusion or yeah. language and one is about accessibility. So on that language side, I really recommend a book called Word Slot by Amanda Montel. It is feminist sociolinguistic. So it's looking at the way that language privileges maleness as normal, but it's not just about gender. As you read it, it brings up so many points about race and class and sexuality and all kinds of other interconnected points and then on the accessibility side I would recommend Mismatch by Kat Holmes really amazing book about the way that we design things for example games and they set up certain body types as normal certain ways of thinking as normal and it's about how we can resist that and challenge that and design genuinely inclusive products and services and ways of moving through the world. They both sound super interesting I will add them to my exceedingly long TBR list. Etty, thank you so much. This has been incredibly interesting and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a lovely time. Thanks. Thank you so much again to Etty for her time talking to us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with friends and colleagues, leave us a review and check you're subscribed so you don't miss us next time. The Good Work podcast is brought to you by Good Work, a social impact business on a mission to make early careers fairer, more inclusive and more meaningful. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time.